I remember reading uh, in the introduction of Seven Habits, Dr. Covey talks about you have the ability to live out of your imagination rather than your past. And that was a really big deal for me because my past was poverty and violence and mm -hmm. prison and all this crazy stuff. And I just kind of thought that that's the way it is. I mean, Welcome to Unstoppable, the podcast for anyone who believes that their past and current circumstances do not define their future potential. I'm Karina Burton, your host and co-founder of CPR Construction Cleaning. This show is a series of profounding conversations that share stories and experiences of unstoppable people. Those who are willing to change, discover what it means to be aligned, and who are also willing to face tough challenges that stand between them and their dreams. As a coach and marketing expert, I live my life believing that I am unstoppable. Now I want you to know that you are unstoppable too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. Today's guest is Weldon Long, who is a successful entrepreneur, sales expert, and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Power of Consistency, Prosperity Mindset Training for Sales and Business Professionals. In 2009, his business was selected by Inc. Magazine as one of America's fastest growing privately held companies. Today, Weldon Long is one of the nation's most powerful speakers and a driven motivator who teaches the same philosophies that catapulted him from poverty to a life of wealth and prosperity. It was the prosperity mindset combined with the power consistency and the sales success system he developed that liberated him from 25 years of poverty, desperation, homelessness, and incarceration. Now a successful entrepreneur, mindset and sales expert the New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author, Weldon enjoys helping individuals, organizations thrive beyond adversity. His life and business experience have accumulated in the powerful message he shares with some of the world's largest companies packaged in one incredible program that will help you transform your business. Thank you mm -hmm. so much, Weldon, for joining us today. Thank you, Karina. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I was introduced to you um, through another podcast that I was on and he had mentioned uh, about your story and he's like, you've got to read his book. You've just got to, I've, I've heard his book several times and, um, I think he would be an amazing guest for the unstoppable show. And so I, of course, got your book. I, I love listening to audiobooks, and I was just like, I was seriously blown away and I'm now in the middle of one of your other, you know, the first book you were, yeah. you wrote, I read the second book and now I'm reading the first book. Yep. I did it backwards, but, um, I had to have you on my show. And so I was like, I've got to get him. So I was so thrilled when you agreed to be on this show. It's my pleasure. You, you have such, we actually say something very similar. Um, I say, never allow your circumstances define your future. And what mm -hmm. is your slogan that you always say? Well, one of them is uh, don't let people tell you you can't do it while you're busy doing it. And the other one is uh, it's easy to do. It's just a little easier not to do. You know, that mindset to just be unstoppable. It, it took you some time to get there. And I can guarantee you that there were probably a ton of people who were like, no way in hell is Weldon ever going to get his shit together, so to speak, right? right. Well, it's funny so, you say that because in my first book, The Upside of Fear, 
my wife always tells people that if they start to read the book to please finish it because they're going to hate me the first half they're going to love me the second half so <laughs> it uh yeah, I, was a, I was a tough case i was a hard case for sure i uh, uh dropped out of high school in ninth grade 15 years old thought i knew what the hell was going on started running the streets ended up in the penitentiary at 23 years old after i held a dude at gunpoint and uh was sentenced to the penitentiary here in Colorado for 10 years, did about four and a half years. They popped me loose at 27 years old. I'm back in the streets. Now I'm a high school dropout and a convicted felon. So you know, really, really batting a thousand there. I make it about 18 months. I go back to the joint a second time on gun charges and parole violations. I get out again at 30 years old. I make it about two years. I get involved with some sketchy telemarketing and uh, at 32 years old was indicted on federal money laundering and mail fraud charges ended up going to the, the the federal joint for a number of years. So between 87 and 2003, that roughly 16-year span, 17-year span, I spent 13 of those years walking prison yards. And it was about in the middle of that journey that I kind of had that moment of clarity that really turned things uh, in, in a new, new direction. So what was it? Because that is the moment when maybe you didn't realize I'm unstoppable, but it started to get you down that path yeah. to become yeah. this unstoppable person. So yeah, you're, you're right. It was, it was, it was a while before I realized I was unstoppable. When I first made the turn uh, and kind of started turning the Titanic around, I thought I was very stoppable. <laughs> it took a while before I realized I had the potential to plow through and just grind it out until good things started to happen. But the big, the big epiphany for me was uh, on June 10th of 1996. I had already finished about six years in the state joint here in Colorado, and now I was in the federal joint starting a seven-year federal sentence. And just as I was starting that federal sentence in uh, 1996, June 10th, my father passed away. And that was kind of the moment of clarity for me. I had a, a three-year-old son that I had fathered when I was out on parole. So I had abandoned my own son. I wasn't even a father to my own kid. I was three-time loser, ninth grade high school dropout, you know, just a typical garden variety, typical garden variety schmuck loser. And uh, when my dad died, I made a decision I was going to change the course of my life. But you're absolutely right. It, I, I was, uh, you know, out of desperation and necessity, like I'm going to make a change. But it was a while before I realized that I was going to make it. And that regardless of the difficulties, regardless of the challenges, regardless of the obstacles, I was going to achieve the things I, I wanted to achieve in my life. And I didn't expect it to be easy, and it certainly wasn't easy. Uh, but you get to that point to where, you know, you are unstoppable. Success is undeniable, that you're not going to be held back. You're not going to be slowed down. Nothing's going to deter you from your primary desires in life. When you get to that point, I tell people you got the keys to the kingdom. Because when mm -hmm. you get that mindset, nothing can slow you down. Nothing can stop you. Nothing can keep you from achieving your life's goals. So let's talk about though your childhood, because if your dad's, the death of your father really impacted you to the point where you're like, I really have to turn my life around. What was your life like when you were a child? You know, that, 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 that's interesting because my father and I were not very close when I was young. My dad was uh, in the military. And so we moved all the time and he was gone all the time. He was in the Navy and the Coast Guard. So it was very common for him to be out to sea for three months or six months at a time. Uh, my mother pretty much raised us. There was five of us. I was the youngest of five kids. Um, but uh, as I got older, my dad retired from the service when I was probably 13 or 14. So I really got to know him more during, during that period. And uh, I don't really know if it was because the strength of my relationship. I mean, I hear stories of people with their dad that, you know, just like this, um, this, this bond, you know, and they learn how to fish together or hunt together. And my dad and I never had it like that. 
I think it was just the, I loved my father, of course. And I think it was the reality. I remember when, when a cop told me that my father had died, he came in the cell house. He came to my cell. He said, long, you got to call home. Your father just passed away. And he was only 59 years old. It was very unexpected. And it was like, my dad just, what are you talking about? He was just fine. You know, I just talked to him a couple of weeks before that. And uh, I remember the, the first thing that kind of came through my mind, though, as I started processing this information is that my father went to his grave with me in prison again. So it was more that I knew I was such a disappointment to my father. Our relationship was probably pretty typical between young sons and their dads. Wasn't really great. Wasn't really bad. Um, but I think it was the reality that I went to, he went to his grave with me being a loser, right? Because I always had it in my mind that somehow I was going to yeah. get my shit together and be this person that my dad could have been proud of. Uh, and my, I mean, my dad was never overly, like he never berated me for all my crazy. He was always just trying to encourage me and hang in there and that kind of stuff. It was the reality that I was never going to get to change his opinion of me again. Mm -hmm. I, I think, yeah. I don't think my dad was, I think my dad just felt sorry for me. It was, it was I was so pathetic. That was the hardest thing of all, you know, I'd rather somebody be angry yeah. at me than just apathetic. You know, obviously I, I just know, you know, from the stories that I've heard and reading your book to this point, there's something though, because at the very beginning, you always still try to be an entrepreneur. You tried. The problem I felt like you struggled with was the hard work, yeah. the hard work that goes behind it. And so you're like, let me take the easy way out. Right. Yeah. Right. No, and I, and I, make, I go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and, and, you know, as a parent, I have four daughters and my oldest one is 18. So she is mm. now in call in college. And so, um, you know, I think like as a parent, if I could step into his shoes, I'm like, I think he saw your, I mean, he saw your potential there. He's like, I know he wants it, but he keeps going left. You know, he keeps going to this easy way out when he really, really wants it. And look at the end of the day, your dad knew your potential, right? Yeah. Even though he passed away. That's, that's because, what my brothers tell me. That's what my brothers tell me all the time, you know? Uh, but you're right. I, I did. I, was a big dreamer from, from day one. I used to, I can remember when I was uh, 18, 19 years old, I had opened a little company. I was raised in South Louisiana and I uh, had a little company doing detailing on cars and that type of thing. And I used to always joke with everybody. Uh, there was a guy, uh, Tom Benson that owned the New Orleans saints and a guy, uh, his name is Casey right here, but he was the founder of Popeye's fried chicken and uh, a Copeland now Copeland. And he was the founder of Popeye's. He lived in New Orleans. And I used to joke about me and Al and Tom are going to hang out. You know, like we're all three of these successful entrepreneurs. One owns the New Orleans Saints. One owns all these restaurants and, and me, this ninth grade high school dropout. So I saw myself like I'm going to be somebody. But you're exactly right. Th there's one or two ways that I feel like people got to go if you're going to be successful. And both of them include hard work. It's either, you know, knuckle down at what you're doing to get great at it or invest in yourself in the education. But I wasn't willing to do any either one of them. I wasn't willing to get the education, the business education, those types of things. I wasn't willing to pay the price and do the hard work. It was all about, you know, I got to get there fast. I got to get there overnight. And I will tell you, there's still, I, if my wife is, I don't know if she's on the side of this room or not, but she will tell you there's still a big part of me that is not very patient, right? It's like, you know, let's go. But, but I, I understand the necessity now for the hard work. And yeah. that was the missing component for me when I was young. Well, and you know, I think that if you didn't have that big dreaming desire, though, that all always taking the quick or easy or fast way out, you know, 
would you be where you are today in, in general? Because even if you had that epiphany, that realization, you would have just been totally defeated by, yeah. I have all these adversities. So you like were born with something at least that this dreaming aspect. You just needed to get this other <laughs> side of your life like adjusted so you could actually just, get there. I just needed to quit stealing shit and pulling guns on people. Once I got past that, everything, <laughs> yeah. was, everything was miraculous, you know? So when you graduate, you didn't graduate high school, right? Nope, you said you were in ninth grade. Yeah. And then you, I, you started a business. What was that first, very first business that you did? Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a kind of a half-hearted attempt. It was a business uh, I learned when I was in my teens, probably 16, 17 from a, a guy I knew how to do pinstriping on cars. So I started this little business uh, where I would go around to car dealerships and I would pinstripe their cars then I opened up a little shop where we did that, like the window tinting and that kind of thing. But it, it's, it's so interesting because I was just before you and I went on, I'm shooting, I was shooting a video, a promotional video for an event we have coming up in October. And it's basically, it's a one-year program that is the process I use to build companies now. Um, and I've got so many examples in my own companies and, and clients' companies, you know, and it's so, it's, it's a simple process, but it's a process, Right. And one of the first things you have to do is set up the accounting and measurement systems, right? Any company I start, the first thing I do is get the book set up properly and get a clean set of books. Back in those days when I was a punk kid, like I would never keep track of the money. I didn't do the accounting. I didn't pay the taxes. I didn't do all that stuff. And it's ironic. I hated that stuff. And I was so disorganized on that side of a business, you know, and, and unfortunately a lot of small businesses that are successful, I put that in quotes because they're paying the bills. They can't really tell you where they are at any given. They just, there's either money in the bank or there's not. They really don't know yeah. what's going on on their P&L, their balance sheet. And, and I, as I've learned about businesses, by the way, when I was in prison, I got a GED. I eventually got a, a, a bachelor's degree and an MBA in business management. So I started learning the, you know, the, the textbook part. I didn't really learn shit until I got out and started building businesses because that's mm -hmm. when I really learned. Um, but it's so funny because I was so disorganized with every part of the business. And now like the second step, the first step is to create the mindset, which we'll talk more about today. I'm sure the second step is to plan and organize. Right? It's like, yeah. I would never do that before when I was young and it doesn't have to be complicated. It's not like a big time, you know, three inch strategic plan. It's just have an idea where you're going. What do I want to go? What are the two or three things I got to do every day? That's the plan and then execute, you know? So yeah, I was a, I was a shipwreck for sure. So you got all of your education while being in jail, mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah, there's Actually, a, a, yeah, a school true. in California, Southern California University. They offer all these correspondence courses for prisoners. And I just spent six years taking those. It's crazy. So when you were getting lined up and finally you're like, this time when I get out, you said for the third time, you were, mm -hmm. this is your third time doing it. You're <laughs> like, this time I'm going to make it. Fingers crossed. How did you, let's talk about the mindset. How did you prepare your mindset? Because yeah. I, you know, there's a huge misconception where people are like, okay, all I have to do analytically is X, Y, and Z. And then it's supposed to fall into place. That's not, that's not how real life works. Real life has the things that you have to do that are written down on paper and make sense. Then there's this other side of business you know, just like life that is really almost like a spiritual aspect of it, right? It's the mindset. Yep. It keeps yep. us like inspired. Um, 
how and what did you do while in jail in a toxic environment, right? That is just <laughs> was, was not very freaky. Nurturing. As it was not yeah, it's <laughs> freaky and scary. But I mean, I'm I'm assuming you probably felt accustomed to it, but still, yeah. like, what did yeah, you, you do? Get, you get accustomed to anything. So I'll tell you what happened. So my dad dies. I make this decision, like I'm going to change the course of my life, right? And I don't know where to start. So the only thing I could do was start reading books. And the first book I picked up within hours of my father passing away was uh, the classic, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey, who, by the way, many years later became a very close friend and a mentor. He endorsed my first two books and was just a, a wonderful, wonderful man. But at that point, I was just some guy in jail, picked up his book. And I remember reading uh, in the introduction of Seven Habits, Dr. Covey talks about you have the ability to live out of your imagination rather than your past. And that was a really big deal for me because my past was poverty and violence and mm -hmm. prison and all this crazy stuff. And I just kind of thought that that's the way it is. I mean, you got to understand I was 32 years old when my dad died. So I kind of was locked and loaded in this particular very destructive direction. And it took a lot of gravitational pull, a lot of desire to shift that. And when I read that I had the ability to live out of my imagination, as silly as this sounds today here, I'm almost 60 years old now, as silly as it sounds today, like that was shocking news to me that I didn't have to repeat the past. I could live out of my imagination and I had an incredibly vivid imagination. And so that was a big thing, realizing that I could. So uh, a little while after that, I was reading um, uh, some quotes, philosophical stuff. And one of them was Frederick Nietzsche. Nietzsche wrote, we attract that which we fear. And then I read in the Bible where Job said that which we have, which I have feared has come upon me. And then in Victor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, he wrote, fear may come true. So I keep getting all this. Everything I'm reading is that, you know, I'm attracting the stuff I fear in my life. That you know, we, we attract that which we fear, that which I have feared has come upon me. Fear may, may come true. So I sat down at the little metal desk in my cell and I decided that, you know, right now, what do I fear the most? And what was it? Being locked up in prison, dying in prison, never knowing my son always being a loser, broke, homeless, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that was a perfect reflection of my life. So kind of the first clue that I got in this whole thing is I got to start putting different stuff in my head. Now, I didn't understand the neuroscience behind it at the time. Um, and I've had a chance to work with, with really smart, you know, neuroscientist people. And I didn't know all that stuff yet. But it's like, I got to start thinking about different stuff instead of the fear and the negativity and the poverty and the struggle. And so I sat back down at that metal desk and I wrote out for me what a perfect life would, would look like. I'm an awesome father to my son. I'm wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. I have a beautiful wife I can love and trust. I'm a man of honor, character, and integrity. I have a beautiful home in Colorado, beautiful, all this crazy stuff <laughs> that if anybody, you know, that, that saw that list, right? Like if you'd have been to the joint with me and we were sellies, you'd look at that list. He said, you're crazy, dude. You're a three-time loser high school dropout. Who the f do you think you are? Yeah. But I took that list, and I, I began to believe this is my imagination. And this guy in this book said I can live out of this instead of this bullshit I've been doing for, you know, since I was 14 years old. So I took mm -hmm. that sheet of paper, Karina, I put toothpaste on the back of it, and I stuck it to the wall on my cell. And there it sat for the next seven years. And every morning when I got up, the first thing I would do is I would review it. I would uh, picture and Napoleon Hill said, imagine yourself in possession of these things. So I started visualizing like it already happened. And I started studying the neuroscience <laughs> and how emotions connect to memories, memories drive our behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. And all this stuff. And little by little by little, you know, the, 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 the I'm not going to get into the neuroscience, but you just don't have the time, but the neural connectors, you can grow new 
you can grow new habitual thoughts. They're little like little vines yeah. on a tree. And I started growing those, not realizing what was happening until many years later when I started studying the neuroscience side. But I started feeling better. And, and you, you asked earlier, you know, when did I feel like I was unstoppable? Uh, I remember the day. It was about a month after I started doing this. And I was in a cell house and a federal detention center in Las Vegas. And for exercise, we just walk around the, the interior perimeter of the cell house, right? Just, you know, probably 100 feet that way and then 100 feet back and just back and forth all day long inside this cell house. And one day I was doing it about a month into this and I'm just bombarding my brain every day, every morning, every night with all of these visualizations, all the stuff I'm going to do. And all of a sudden, it's like I got like a sense of excitement. And it's mm -hmm. like, it's like, I know that I'm going to make it. I know that I'm going to make it. And around that same time, I had uh, a very spiritual experience where I was kind of in the, in, in the first early days of this whole process, like in the first week or two, I was, uh, I was thinking, I was crying about my dad. I was in my cell. I was crying. I was overwhelmed by the destruction of my life. Lost my kid. I didn't know where my kid was. His mother was a heroin addict. My dad was dead, all this stuff. And I write about this in my first book. And there was somewhere in there where I had the sheet pull up over my head because, you know, I don't, you know, people could, could look in the window in a cell. And, and all of a sudden, I felt like what I've always described as warm water. It's like somebody dumped a warm bucket of water on my head and it started my head and it just right the whole thing, maybe three or four or five seconds. And as soon as that was done, I'm like, okay, my life isn't going to be the same. And then about two weeks later, I had that experience walking around the cell house and I didn't use the word unstoppable, but I knew in my heart that I was going to make it. And I had seven years left to go in the joint, but I knew in my yeah. heart, I didn't give a damn about what I had to, to do, how much work was involved, how much difficulty I was going to do the work. I was going to read the books. My master plan was to read what successful people do and do it. Don't try to reinvent their wheel. Don't try to second guess it. Don't try to judge it. Just F and do it. And that's what happened. And as that process evolved, there, there came a time where I just felt like there's no way this isn't going to happen. I had, yeah. when I got out seven years later, there were a couple of setbacks, made me question it, but, but I continued to push through and it worked. So when you, I mean, seven years, that is really powerful because it just goes to show though, that people who are like, you know, you ha you suddenly have this massive success, right? Like you really built a business very quickly in a sense after you left, you know, prison, mm -hmm. but for, you know, holy crap, you put in so much work prior to that seven years of changing your mindset is really powerful and in a place that is not conducive to that. But, you know, did you, so for me, I have one thing that like I struggle with so much and it's, and it's been something that was ingrained in me as a child. And then when I was in my twenties and then when I became a single mom of three daughters, I just continued to have the same thing reoccur. And so sometimes I'm like, you know, I have to really like focus in on it and be like, I have the power to change this thing that has been mm -hmm habitually happening in my life, right. I just have to have what you're saying. You know, I go through those moments of, you know, I've been doing this for how many years I've been doing it for a long time. And I have to feel like that part of my life is not there anymore. It's not existent. I instead attract abundance. Right. I instead, and I got to feel it. And 
you know, people don't see that hard work, right? Because because right. once you break through that that barrier, you break through that iceberg, all they see is that amazing right. giant mountaintop that you just created. And they're like, wow, where did that come from? That came from right. nowhere. And you're like, right. oh, no, no. Let's right. go back several years and even in between that. So, you know, it's, it's like know, Napoleon Hill says that when success comes, it will come with such – uh, such quickness and which speed and in such volume that you wonder, well, how was it so difficult for so long? Cause like when the dam breaks, like you're talking about the dam breaks, mm -hmm. you know, it's Katie bar the door. It, it, it does seem to happen, you know, fast, but you're right. That foundation, when I walked out of the penitentiary seven years after my dad died to a homeless shelter, I tell people my foundation was strong, like bull, right? Like I was an immovable object. I was going to succeed, but I had done the hard work. Right. And so you're absolutely right it looks like, you know, an overnight success or whatever, but we all know that there's a lot of work that goes in mm -hmm. building that foundation. So when you left the penitentiary and you were in a, a halfway house, mm -hmm. you had to find a job. Yep. I know that that was a struggle for you. That was a so let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. So and how you, know, you were able to overcome it. Sorry. Yeah. So I, I think I know exactly what, what part of the book you're referring to. So I, <laughs> uh, in January of 2003, uh, they kicked me out of the joint. I'm in a, a halfway house for ex-cons and other people and uh, that have no place to go. I had no place to go. And so, you know, job one was to get a job. Number two was to get a place to live. Number three is get my son. He was 10 years old by that time. He was three years old. When my dad died. He was 10 when I got out. So I had to get a job, get a place to live. And so I had this little thing. I was so confident. It was ridiculous now looking back. I mean, it was like I had just tricked my brain into thinking that I was that I was unstoppable, that I was going to be successful. I just like tricked myself. I brainwashed myself, you know. And so I needed a job. So I would go out every single day. They let us leave the halfway house like from eight in the morning to six in the evening to go out and job hunt. And so I would, I would, you know, get the one ads, the paper, whatever. And, uh, but I would, I would knock on every door I walked past and I would just walk in. I had a little spiel. I would tell people I'd walk in. I'd say, hi, how do you do? I'm welding long. I just need one shot, one job, one opportunity. I'll never lie, cheat or steal. And I'll sell more of whatever you're selling than anybody else has ever sold. Now I had never done that. Right? I did, you know, everything I knew at that point pretty much was theoretical, but I had that confidence. And that went on from January into February. We're in Colorado. It's winter time. I don't have a car. I'm on the bus and I'm walking. And it was just month after month after month, day after day after day, trudging, literally trudging through the snow to the next door to knock on, right? And this went on for about four months. And finally, in about April of, of January of uh, 2003, I walk into this place. Guy was hiring salesmen. It was some kind of insurance product or something. And I walked into the manager's office, introduced myself. I said, how do you do? I'm welding long. I just need one shot, one job, one opportunity. He goes, man, we need some great attitudes like that around here. And I'm like, well, there's a little more to the story. <laughs> I spent 13 years in the joint, living up in Comcore, blah, blah, blah. And this dude looks at me, Karina. He says, he goes, I don't think you're, I don't think you're that guy. I think you're a changed man. And I'm like, you damn straight. I'm a changed man. I'm not the same dude as that guy on paper. And so he talks to me and, and then he leaves for a bit. And he comes back with a notepad and a piece of pen and a pen. And he goes, I want you to write down, you know, when you went to prison, why you went to prison, et cetera. So I wrote it all down real quick. He walks out and he's going to take it to human resources and talk to somebody down there. And I'm getting so excited. I can't stand it. Right. It's four months that I've been out. It's like everything on that piece of paper is going to start happening. I just got to get this job. And about 10 minutes later, he walks in and I can see the disappointment on his face. And he walks in. He says, Mr. Long, I said, dude, whatever you say next, don't let it be the word no. Right. I will scrub the toilets around here. I'll go out there and wash your fancy BMW. I don't give a rip, but do not say the word no. 
And he says, man, if it was me, it would be a hundred percent. Yes. But human resources with this record, is just, it's just not going to happen. And he sat down at his desk and I was across from him and he looked at me and he said the thing that shot me like an arrow through the heart. It was the pit in his voice that got to me. He said to me, what are you going to do? And that pity, just like, what do you yeah. mean? When I stood up, I said, what do you mean? I just told you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a job, get a place to live and get my kid, you know? And so I stormed out of there. He couldn't hire me. And I, I had about a half a mile walk to the bus stop. Uh, the bus ends up being late and I'm late, almost late getting back to the halfway house. And if you're late, it's an automatic trip to jail. They call it uh, technical escape because technically we're still in the Department of Corrections or letting us, you know, get this, trying to get a foothold on making a life out there. But if you're late, you're late. That's their big deal. They put you back in prison. And so I get the bus stop and I get off and I run to the halfway house. I make it back about two minutes before, before, and I'm just overwhelmed with just stress and all the old tapes start playing. And I sat down on my bunk and all of a sudden I hear this voice in my head, you know, and it's a question I've asked myself a thousand times. How bad do you want it? How bad mm -hmm. do you want it? Did you expect it to be easy? Did you think there was going to be a ticker tape parade? Did you think the world was going to celebrate you doing that? I was 40 years old at that point. I should have been doing that shit since I was 20 out there trying to work. And so I decided that I wanted it a lot. So I got up the next morning. I'm welding long. I just need one shot. I'm knocking on doors all day long. April turns into May. May turns into June. Finally, at least it's warm, so I'm not freezing my ass off out there. And in the last week of June, 2003, after six months of that, I walked into a little heating and air conditioning company and the guy gave me a shot and he goes, can you sell air conditioners? And I said, I'll die trying. And I went out that very first month, which was July of 2003. It was, it was summertime. So it was a good time to sell air conditioners. I sold $149,000 of air conditioners. My first month made about $12,000 in sales commissions. And I never looked back. I worked for that guy for a year. A year later, I opened my own heating and air conditioning company. I know nothing about the mechanical side. Even now, 20 years later, I know nothing about the mechanical side. But I know the sales and the marketing. And you can hire the people that understand mm -hmm. the operations, technology. I built that company to $20 million in five years. I sold it, started writing books and speaking and doing, doing that whole thing. And that's, that's kind of been, I mean, that's the long and the short of all of it, really. So your experience, though, with all of these no's or even that that one specific experience where you're he's like what are you gonna do yeah it's because he felt right then and there he's like what i see on paper right everything that he was saying is saying who you are what your destiny is your destiny is your future right and that's it's an example that you cannot put your hope, trust, or belief in anyone, right? That, yeah. To believe in you. He, he did, you he have to know, believe in yourself. He didn't know I was living out of my imagination, not my past. He hadn't, he hadn't quite figured that out at that point. I did. But also, you know, we have the power to change the projection of our future through our choices. Okay. We don't have to be defined by what has happened. And the most difficult circumstances you I mean facing I swear you have if somebody has like for heaven's sakes they like to just like chop you up and tell you you're the worst human in the world and I don't want to give you anything right let alone having to deal with three-time convicted felon mm -hmm. so you know if you have the ability to overcome that and still have this amazing success story not only financially with abundance but now your life and your family you know really when you have something like that like anybody can overcome 
anything because if it's written down on paper, a lot of times people believe that shit to the T right. and that's the biggest mistake of, of people's lives. Like right. you got to listen to your intuition. You've got to listen to what's telling you inside because more often than not, as an entrepreneur, as somebody who's, you know, started businesses, I have helped grow businesses. I've done all of these things and I, and now I have my own business right now. I have multiple companies the times that I didn't listen to my intuition is the times that I lost the times right. that I made the biggest mistakes. And I'm like, damn it, Karina, you had it inside of you all along and you didn't trust your own, your own instincts. Um, let's talk about your sales though, because I mean, that's really my background is sales and branding marketing, yep. that whole little encompassment. Yep. And it's not easy. When I first started in sales, I was terrible. But I did it because I was this newly single mom of three and I had no real, I really didn't have any work experience except for when I was in high school. Um, and then like a year in college, I worked at Albertsons. I worked at a pizza place before that. And, you know, I was a stay at home mom for 10 years and I got this job just working at a jewelry store doing sales. I sucked. And I, I just felt like I was in this misery. And then I ended up getting into funnier heating and cooling i was in the restoration which mm. we would always network with your guys's company you know to send us yep. leads in case there was any floods or anything like that and i was really bad and it wasn't until i changed the narrative of what sales meant for me yeah. and then that's when the entire thing exploded for me and i went from being really bad to really good i'd love to hear what did you do? Like not to give all your secret sauce, but yeah, you know, no. give us some good well, stuff here. <laughs> the, the way I look at it, when I'm, when I'm working inside of a company or if I'm uh, speaking and, uh, and training, whatever, I always approach it. There, there's kind of a three-part process to be really successful in, in sales and business. And, and the core, the core part of it is the sales process, right? But there's two bookends that people don't give enough attention to. And one bookend is the prosperity mindset. That's why I wrote the power of consistency because it helps mm -hmm. you create the mindset and you complement the mindset with the process and great things can happen. The other book in is consistency itself, right? Thinking the right things and doing the right things on a consistent basis. What I've learned, if you're thinking the right things and doing the right things on a consistent basis, you're not going to accidentally create the wrong results. The wrong results come from wrong thinking or wrong behaviors. That's it. If you're thinking the right things, doing the right things, eventually you're going to create the right things. And consistent sales results come from consistent sales activities. Random sales results come from random sales activities. So much of it is the mindset thing. One of the exercises I do, I talk a lot in my, in my books and my training about uh, limiting beliefs and ideas that we get in our head, what I call junk in the trunk, right? And I'll ask a group, typically of salespeople, I'll say, listen, we're going to do a little game of, uh, of word association. I'm going to give you a word, and I want you to think of the first one or two words that come to your mind. And that word is salesman. And then I wait a couple of seconds and I say, how many people by a show of hands had a negative derogatory term come to mind? And at least two thirds of salespeople, mm -hmm. their hand will go up. Sleazy, lazy, pushy, high pressure, snake oil, <laughs> all this bullshit. Well, if that's what's in our head about sales, how in the hell are we ever going to get good at it? Right? Those mm -hmm. limiting beliefs that we have, those like you mentioned, the false narrative, how am I going to go out and be great at something that I think sucks? So we have to get straight in our mindset about what sales is. The fact that it's an honorable profession and it helps people solve problems, improves the quality of their life. Whenever I go into a company, 
I don't care what it is in a heating and air conditioning company, for example, I tell people, listen, you're not in the heating and air conditioning business, right? You're in the sales and marketing business and you happen to install air conditioners and heaters, right? You've got to understand that sales and marketing is what drives businesses. When COVID hit two and a half years ago, I was traveling 200,000 miles a year. And I didn't even know I hated it because I've been doing it for 10 or 12 years. I've been doing it for so long. I forgot that I hated it. It was just like, like uh, I, 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 I'd get on a plane and somebody turned the switch on, I'd go do it and I'd come home and it went on for years and years and years. And so when COVID hit, it's like, wow, this is kind of nice. You know, I'm home every day. It was great for my marriage. It was great for our family. It was great for all these different things. And so when COVID hit, like, what am I going to do? So I decided because I was a glutton for punishment to open another heating and air conditioning company, because why not? I'm going to be sitting around. I'm not going to travel for a while, you know, two weeks turned into two and a half years. And uh, I opened that company. This is our third year at that company. And we're budgeted and we're pacing for $10 million. And people are like, how can you generate a $10 million revenue in your third year? Because I'm a sales and marketing company disguised as a heating and air conditioning company, right? Y'all don't mm -hmm. care what product you have. You can have the best product. You can have the best service, but the best marketing, the best salesperson will win. Yeah, It's unfortunate, but it's true. And, and I see it in every business. You've always got the old school people that are really, mm -hmm. really good at their craft, right? Whether it's air conditioning or siding or restoration, uh, it could be a siding company, window company, and they're like old school, like the very best in craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. And they got some new guy in town kicking their ass because the new guy is better at sales, right? So the yeah. key is you got to find the people that are great on the operational side of the industry and you got to give them the skills. That's what I've been doing for 20 years, giving these op the, the operational experts, giving them the sales and marketing skills to build a business. As far as the sales process itself, and I know you haven't read it yet, but I've wrote a third book called Consistency Selling, that little red and white one right there. We'll be sure and send you a copy. But it goes through and it takes the sales process and breaks it down to four components. R-I-S-C, build the relationship, investigate the problems and the pain, solve the problems mm -hmm. and the pain, and then bring the call to a conclusion. You'll notice that that C does not say bring the call to a close. This screws up more salespeople. But they go in with, I got to close it, I got to close it. The reality is nobody's going to close 100%. But you can bring every sales opportunity to a reasonable and logical conclusion. And that's the yep. secret. You talk about the secret sauce. When I go into a sales call, what I want is to create an environment, create a situation to where my prospect is going to give me a yes or no answer at the end, even if the answer is no. And I'll tell them no is a perfectly acceptable answer, right? Because I want to bring it to a conclusion. Because here's what I've learned. Mm -hmm. In sales, the no's will not kill you. We're all going to get some yeah. no's. It's the I don't know's. I'm going to call you back. It's going to be the, the wing and the prayers. Those will destroy you because you're always looking over your shoulder thinking you're going to get that deal from last week. You got to take every opportunity and bring it to its reasonable conclusion and then move on to the next opportunity. So I tell my prospects, listen, what I want to do is to take some time with you. You want to write something down. I'm your listeners, your viewers, Mr. Mm -hmm. Mr. Prospect. All I want to do is take some time today and find out exactly what's going on, what's the right solution, what's the right budget, and answer all your questions. At the conclusion of that, all I ask today is that you let me know one way or the other whether or not I'm a good fit and knows a perfectly acceptable answer. Yeah. And then once I get that commitment, then I just I, I go through it. And, and if at the end my prospect says, well, I got to think about it, I use what I call the three most powerful words in sales. Earlier, you said. <laughs> Earlier, you said that you could let me know today if I'm a good fit. I mean, does something change? Well, gee, golly, Joe's, well, nothing changed. It's just a lot of money. I understand it. And so I acknowledge their objection. I just say, well, I understand it's a big decision. But what do you say we start the paperwork? 
right? Yeah. Because the reason it's called consistency selling is it leverages the consistency principle as kind of developed by uh, Robert Cialdini at uh, Arizona State right? Down in your neck of the woods, in fact. He's a professor of psychology down there. And he talks about this principle of consistency that public declarations dictate future actions. People tend to do things that are consistent with their previous declarations. So if you tell me, you can let me know today whether I'm a good fit. And then a half an hour later, you start saying, well, no, I can't let you know today. I'm going to say, well, earlier you said you could let me know, Karina, when what happened? Did I do something wrong? Well, no, yeah. it's going to create all kinds of anxiety in you because you're going to feel like I did say that. And so, and I'll tell them, no is a perfectly acceptable answer. Because I think what kills salespeople is just that ambiguity and all the beebacks, the callbacks, the pipe dreams, the wings and the prayers, the fairy dust, all that stuff. Just get down to business, close the opportunities that you can, and move on to the next opportunity. It's not rocket science. Oh, you know, it's so, I'm like, I want to give an amen to that. As somebody who's in sales, right? And I, I, have, I have grown several businesses over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, oh, you know, like well you, too. You, you've looked at your prospect at times at the closing table and you reach across and you say, let's pray. Amen. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, amen. But seriously, like I just actually, actually, when you said you are not in the sales necessarily of, you know, you just so happen to be selling the heating right. and cooling, but you are a marketing company. Yep. And honestly, that has been so my company is one of my companies is uh, construction cleaning. So we specialize in mm. construction cleaning. And when we started, it was the beginning of 2020. And a lot of I'd say, you know, how did you grow this company so quickly? And, and, you know, and, and it was all of our branding, everything we did, right? We made sure on the back end, the operations did a really great job and everything was right. going you know, smoothly, but we were just like, I just was pumping the crap out of just the brand. You're mm -hmm. buying into the brand. And once you give us an opportunity, you're going to be sold. Right. Yeah. But it's so true. You can do that same exact idea with anybody. Yeah. No, I, I like I teach, any company. I teach a six step process to building a small business and the steps are identical regardless of the business, whether it's a restoration company or it's, it's a construction cleaning company or, you know, a siding company, roofing company, window company, any type of service. It's the same six steps. So like you just have so much in between. So I'm going to like pull it a little bit back to your, you know, the company that then started, you know, um, was in the Inc magazine for being yep. one of the most successful companies, like in such a short period of time. Yep. Did you ever have a moment though, where you're like, I don't know if I can do this. Absolutely. Or if you, you know, do you Absolutely. still have those moments and what do you do to overcome that? So, you know, it's not all, uh, uh roses and chocolates and sugar plums, you know, in, in business. In uh, 2007, I opened that, that company, that first little heating company, air conditioning company in 2004. 2007, we're rocking and rolling, and I decided to buy up some of my competitors. I bought three or four of them up, and I borrowed a couple of million dollars and, you know, assumed a couple of million dollars in, in money that they owed and put the deals together and bought four or five smaller companies and combined it with my company and, and became the largest company. And then 2008 and 2009 hit right? We had the recession, the housing market collapsed. Yeah. 
And all of a sudden people are like losing their homes and going into foreclosure and all of a sudden business just slows down. And uh, when that happened by 2008, by the end of the summer of 2008, a couple of the companies I had purchased used the same suppliers that we did. And we had assumed the money, those debts that they owed those companies as part of the purchase, part of the acquisition. Well, at the end of that summer of 2008, between what I owed them from my company and what I assumed from these other companies uh, that owed, it was a total of almost $500,000. It was 480 grand. And so the owner of the supply house came to me and goes, dude, you owe us a half a million dollars. What are you going to do? And I said, well, you know, let's, let's figure it out. So we sat down and hammered out a promissory note that I would pay it back in 24 months, right? It was $20,000 a month for, for 24 months. I had to put, allow them to put a, a deed of trust, a lien on my Maui house to secure the note, right? And it was kind of funny over the next couple of years, uh, I would call the owner of that company or the salespeople that worked for him. And I would say, hey, you know, does, uh, does so-and-so mind if I use the condo for a couple of weeks? Because he kind of owned it during <laughs> those two years. Right? <laughs> and so here we are in 2008, economy's in, in the tank. I just took on the $20,000 a month. And so what do we do? Well, I tell people, you can't steal your way out of it. You can't borrow your way out of it. You can sell your way out of it. It's the only way. So we got better mm -hmm. at selling. And we got better at selling and we paid that note off actually four months ago. We paid it off in, in, uh, in 20 months. And it taught me one of the most important lessons in life. That is just, you got to learn to sell better and you cannot give up. There were several times during that period, people, my accountant, my lawyer, why don't you file bankruptcy, dude? Everybody else is. And I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, because of where I come from, that's what people expect from me. They expect the convict to bail. Eventually, when, 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 the, when, the, when the going gets tough, the convict gets going, right? And I said, hell no, I'm not going to do that. We paid back every dime. We worked through it. We built the company back up and I sold it in 2010. So, you know, it's just, just hard work, but you're right. It's, it's not always easy. It's not always fun. It's, it's funny. I, I started this company in COVID with my brother-in-law and his wife, and they had been for a couple of years, like, let's do a business together. Cause they, you know, they see our lifestyle and things and they mm -hmm. think it just, oh, it looks so easy. You know, you just, you just <laughs> comes yeah. over a bunch of money, you know, that pays for the Ferraris that pays for the G wagons, right? Yeah, it's easy. And so they're like, we should open. It. I said, guys, I finally agreed to, I said, it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. And about two years into it, they were like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> I was like waking up at two o'clock. I tell people you haven't lived to you till you've wakened at two o'clock in the morning on a Thursday night, Friday morning, wondering how you're going to make payroll in five hours. Like that's pressure, yeah. right? Or payroll yeah. taxes, right? Miss a couple of payroll taxes and see how fast the IRS is knocking on your door. You're entrusted yeah. with that money. And if you don't pay it to the government, uh, they will have your ass. So it's doing great now. Like I said, that, that company will do 10 million this year. It's making money. It's rocking and rolling. But it was, I don't, it wasn't funny. It was interesting just that when the reality of how hard it really was hit them, you know, uh, it was, uh, it was a real eye-opening moment, but yeah, man, it's gonna, it's gonna be tough times. It's gonna be, it's, it's, it has to be that, that, you know, that's what tests the metal, right? That's what just yeah. makes you stronger. Well, and you gave a really great point about, um, you know, I've heard a lot of people in, um, you know, in business, whenever they hit like really hard times are like, well, I guess I'm just going to file bankruptcy. Right. And, you know, some people, I guess that's the situation that they want to go down. And, and there's no shame in that. I, I always tell no. people there's no shame. A lot of people have been through that. You go through a divorce, you go through a bad business mm -hmm. relationship, things happen, <laughs> bad things happen to good people. But for me, it wasn't the right thing because of my background. That was what people expected. And I wasn't going to give them the satisfaction of being right. Yeah. About me. But also I, I do want to point this out because I think that you do deserve 
you know, a, a pat on the back or whatever you want to say, but uh, that going that route though is so much more difficult. It's very stressful. Like you're saying, you're taking on a new monthly debt that you're having yeah. to pay. You're having to figure it out. You're having to not only, you know, make sure that your work family is fed, right? You're having to pay these debts and do it in an honorable way. And that takes so much courage. I, and I know this because, you know, you know, as a business, when you grow really quickly, you know, people, like I said, people never see the actual right. inner workings of how companies are. And they, all they see is like the growth. Oh, wow. This is all like so amazing. And when you are struggling, you know, because things are not lining up or you have, you know, something like that happen, you're kind of like hit square between the eyes and you have a moment to say, how am I going to handle this? Right. And maybe that is the right thing for that moment, but to take on that challenge is a very honorable thing and a very difficult thing to do because, you know, you're saying I'm taking this risk and I'm, I'm taking on this major burden that I'm going to have to, that I promise that I've recommitted. So, you know, even though you're saying this was, you know, doing going that route is not meant for you, you still put in a hell of a lot of effort in, into doing that. And it's, it is a very honorable thing that you did that. Well, um, I, I appreciate that very much, but I, I think, I think a lot of us face those kind of difficult challenges and, and uh, you know, and, and standing up to those, that's, that's what it's all about. I mean, listen, you've, you've had, I tell people, nobody gets through life on this planet without getting their teeth kicked in from time to time. You know, divorce is difficult. Losing a business or a home is difficult. Mm -hmm. Losing a loved one is difficult. You know, we've all had difficult times. We've all got the scars to prove it, right? Nobody's really yeah. just had it easy through this life. It's funny. I used to always use the expression, I'd say, unless you're Paris Hilton. My wife was telling me a couple of months ago, apparently Paris Hilton was abused in, in, in some place where an institution she was in or something. It's like, I mean, nobody gets out unscathed. Yeah. And we've all got yeah. the scars to prove it, you know? So what are you doing now? I mean, you have your multiple businesses, but you're also, yep. um, you know, a major speaker, you're writing yep. books. Yep. So, uh, you know, the speaking business, uh, the convention business is picking back up. I do a lot of keynote speaking, which I think you do as well as addition to your other businesses, you know, just the 60 minute keynote, which I love because that's, <laughs> they fly in, they treat you like a rock star, they pay you a bunch of money and <laughs> you're out of there in, you know, 90 minutes or whatever. Uh, so that's, we're seeing a lot more of that happen. Uh, a lot of inbound inquiries, a lot of events. Uh, the one thing that's been nice is people did get used to virtual. So I'm doing a lot of virtual, which is, in fact, I, I think today we're scheduling it. We're meeting with the meeting planners this afternoon. It's a virtual convention. And, you know, a lot of that stuff went oh, on in COVID. Awesome. People are still doing it. It's so much more affordable. So I do that. Uh, I've got a couple little companies. I run the HVAC company. I got a little app that I do. Uh, I do a lot of work with the nonprofit in the HVAC industry out in California. It's uh, an 85-year-old nonprofit. Do a lot of work with those guys promoting uh, their stuff. Uh, we do a lot of our own events. We've got a uh, once a year I do an event where I take 20 business owners and I put them through a one-year program. I only do 20 at a time. It's very time-consuming. It kicks off uh, this year. It's called Prosperity 2022. It kicks off with three days here in Colorado Springs where we work from eight in the morning to eight at night for three days. It's a lot of fun. I know it sounds like a lot of work. It is a lot of work, but we have a ton of fun. <laughs> 
and we work together and then we work together every week for a year and we do a monthly mastermind with the whole 20 group, but one-on-one with me for a year. And I walk them through those six steps. I tell people, uh, a lot of people who are experts, whatever you want to call us, will point you in the right direction. And I do a mm-hmm. lot of that, but in this particular event, I point them in the right direction. I take them by the hand and I walk the journey with them because every week we're going, we, we, we start with the mindset. Then we go into the strategic plan, the organizational chart, building accounting systems, building the sales system, building the operation and service systems, and then a system to execute, modify, and uh, you know, make sure that we're making the changes we have to make as we measure the results and things. And I take them through the same process uh, that I've taken my companies through and my clients' companies. I just had three clients uh, that are medium-sized companies, and they all three just sold to private equity firms. And the combined value when they sold of those three companies was 260 million. And every one of them credit that journey that I took with them and just get things organized, get things focused on the sales process, a duplicatable systematic sales process is so important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can't build your business on just sales rock stars. There's not enough of them. You have to build your business around the sales process. So you can take people with, with medium talent and plug them in your system to be successful. Uh, My air conditioning company, I just hired a guy that was selling cars. I bought my assistant a new car. And the salesman that handled the thing for, for her was like super cool. I met him. I hired him for the HVAC company, put him through one week of training. And the guy went out his first week and sold $50,000 of air conditioners because we focus on the process. We organize around the process. Yeah. Good people, of course, but always the process. That's and It's literally, you know, you can take anyone who has that potential, anyone who's just has a desire to want to learn to, to yeah. grow. And then you, do the little, you know, secret sauce on them with your knowledge. Got a, and look at mine. that. <laughs> I got a buddy of mine. His wife calls it Wally's magic pissy dust. <laughs> yeah. So say, I'm like, dang. Um, I, had a, I had a client one time I was getting on with a new client and she had, she knew the guy had just finished up a project for her, And so she called him for a reference and she was like, well, what exactly does he do? And he's like, I don't even know. <laughs> I just know he goes in the room with people <laughs> and they come out and they sell a lot more and they got a better attitude. So. They just come back making millions of dollars. Um, Okay. Well, I could literally talk to you forever about this. Just, I mean, pick your brain, learn from you, um, be inspired by you. Where can the audience find you? Because I know that they're going to be curious to know more and buy your books. Obviously, uh, WeldonLong.com is our website. W-E-L-D-O-N, WeldonLong.com. You can search me on Amazon. You'll find all the books, all the social media platforms, just at WeldonLong. Uh, very easy to find. It's hard to hide these days of the internet. So uh, very, the website, uh, the website, if folks are interested in checking out Prosperity 2022, go to the website, just drop us a line uh, at info at weldonlong.com. We'll have somebody reach out and give us some more information. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Do you have, thank so you. you have that, that coming up. Do you've got anything else, any new books in the pipeline? Uh, no, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a couple of books I'm noodling around. Uh, nothing that I've really started outlining and, and doing a, a manuscript for, but I got, I got a couple of really cool ideas and things I'm working on. I think I've got to get some of these other projects kind of finished. Uh, I'll, I'll be selling a couple of these companies here by the end of next year, and then I'll have a little more time to get back to writing more. Keep yourself so busy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I tell people I sat on my ass for 20 years. I got lots of making up. Yeah, right. You're like, you got some making up to do. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much again, Weldon. Thank you. Appreciate it.